All right, keep your Bibles open there. We're going to walk through that together. Just as a, just a general rule, we want to eye, our eyes on Scripture together. And um, so we will generally put supplemental Scriptures on, this, on the screen, but our primary one we won't put up there. Really, we want you to have your nose in Scripture with us. So if you got your, you know, actual physical Bible, cool, open that. Keep your apps open. If you're on a smartphone, there's no judgment there. That's all good. It's the Word of God. But let's, let's look together. Wherever you normally read the Bible, let's, let's have our eyes on that together. Before we jump in, though, one quick announcement. Um, the Restore Network... Um, annual banquet is, is coming up um, at the end of the month, I think March 24th. Perfect. Um, and if you're new, or maybe you haven't heard of Restore Network, if you're, if you're not new, you, you know that it has gripped uh, my family's heart significantly. Their mission statement is very simply changing the culture of foster care so that every child experiences healing. It's simple, but it is a huge task because the culture of foster care, if you know anything about it, is not producing healing. It's producing more harm and it is hard, and it is broken. Uh, but there is a light breaking through in the midst of that brokenness, and Restore is leading out in that. I love the organization. I'm inviting you to come here. It's a, it's a watch party, so it'll be a virtual banquet, um, but instead of us having to travel up to the Metro East area, which is where it's kind of central uh, out of, we get to gather here, so I want to invite you here. We'll, we're going to cater in a good meal, uh, at 6 o'clock, and at 7 o'clock, we'll watch the banquet together. This is a fundraiser, but it is also a great opportunity for you to just learn more about the organization. Okay, so uh, I know you hear me talk about it a lot, and maybe you're like, man, I don't even know. Like, I don't know what I can do. I don't know what exactly they do. This is a great opportunity for you to come and hear more about it. So invite some friends. Uh, you could sign up. Uh, you can go to their website and sign up. If you got our app, I've got a lot of opportunities on there. You can go right to the event there. You can know a little bit more about our story, how we got connected in there to Restore Network. You can sign up directly there. If you sign up through their link, you'll have to find our church as a drop down. There's a whole lot of locations to choose from. So select our church and say you're coming here so we can get enough food to feed you. But we want to invite everybody to come here. If nothing else, do it as a favor for your pastor to hear why I am so in love with this organization. I'm serious. If that's six o'clock to eat and we'll, we'll start the program at seven. So um, please, if you got questions about it, let me know. Otherwise, we want to see you all here March 24th for the Restore Network banquet. All right. Back to Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaching on prayer. This is week two. When it comes to prayer, uh, it, it's, one, it's, it's one of the most profound and incredible things that we get invited to speak to the God of the universe. It's incredible, isn't it? You ever been in a room where, you know, it's like, okay, who wants to pray? Who wants to bless the food? Nobody wants to do it. I think it's David Platt. It's like, listen, when we're doing that, like all of heaven is like, do you know who you're talking to, right? Like we just, we just miss out that the invitation there is to talk to the, to the God of the universe. It should blow our minds. And yet it's one of those things that's so universal and so, you know, everybody's okay with praying, even if they're not a Christian, that it, it sort of loses its impact a lot of times. And that's kind of what we, we talked about last week, um, was that Jesus is inviting us to do something incredible. So today we're going to get into the kind of the practice of prayer. And, and I think when it comes to that, there, there's two primary ditches. There's certainly nuances within this, but two primary ditches or errors that we can fall into um, when it comes to prayer. And one is um, just over, or, you know, emphasizing the sovereignty of God, maybe not overemphasizing, but getting caught up in, in it and like, okay, because God is sovereign and, and, and he already knows he's going to do what he wants, why, why pray, right? And you could sort of see how we get there because even at the beginning of this, you know, when Jesus starts teaching on prayer, he says, Matthew 6, um, <clears throat> verse uh, 8, he says, you don't have to use a lot of words because your Father in heaven already knows what you need before you ask him. And some of you are super logical like me, and you're like, 
then why do I ask him, right? Like it's the struggle of like, okay, if he already knows, and the Psalm says he's in heaven, he's gonna do as he pleases. He knows the future. You can get kind of in your own head, go, I don't know why I'm praying then, right? The, uh, the other side of the ditch, the other side of the road that this we can fall in is, is sort of an, uh, a, what we would call a name it and claim it theology, where we, we begin to believe that, okay, whatever we say, whatever we, as long as we say it in Jesus' name, man, he's going to give it to us. And if, and if we're not getting it, it's because we don't have enough faith. And listen, there's some scriptures that, that, that lead us there, if we're not careful, because, you know, several times in John, Jesus says, right, what if you ask in my name? It'll be yours. And even the last part of what Aaron read here, it says, listen, ask and it'll be given. You know, seek, you'll find, knock, and you'll, you'll, you'll find it. Like, and, and, and then other places says, you have not because you ask not. But then if we're honest, we go, okay, but that doesn't play it out for me. I've asked plenty of things and I haven't received them, right? I remember being in college, this Christian gathering in college, and there was a conversation that happened, I think out of a prayer request, a, a young woman was sick with something, asking us for pray, to pray for her. And this other guy kind of postured up and was like, listen, if you just have enough faith and you ask in Jesus' name, he'll heal you. And it's like, okay, yeah, let's do that. And, but he's like really insistent. Like, no, no, you, you need to have enough faith and he'll heal you. And he kind of kept pressing. And I'm like, uh, you know, my theology wasn't real sharp at the time, but I'm like, man, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's there, man. Like I, I see times in the scripture whenever God doesn't heal. He, specifically with Paul, Paul's like, hey, I had this thorn in my flesh. I've asked three times, like pleading with the Lord, take this from me. And God's answer was, no, my grace is sufficient. Like, I'm gonna leave it with you. And I don't know about y'all, but I don't really want to like toe up and, you know, go against Paul with faith, you know, comparison. Like, I'm pretty sure if Paul, you know, Paul had enough faith, he'd seen the Lord do a miraculous thing. So I, th that's not necessarily the case. So there's this tension and it is a tension. But the good news is that Jesus resolves this tension by reminding us that we're not talking to some supernatural, impersonal force. Right? We're not talking to the universe in, in a way that we've got to get the formula right in order to get our prayers heard. Last week was the focus of, hey, you're talking to your father. You're talking to your father. And it's that relational dynamic that, that solves this tension of, yeah, he knows, and, and he already knows, but he still wants us to ask, and he's going to do what's best, but he still wants us to ask. And he says, hey, I'll give you whatever's good in my name. We'll end without kind of resolving that tension. But it's all, it's all centered on him being our father. That was the whole emphasis of last week. 14 times in, in a short passage or short, you know, from the end of chapter 5 to the, uh, the beginning of 7, 14 times Jesus uses the phrase our father when he's talking about how we should approach him. He is doing something intentional to emphasize this truth. And that's what we looked at last week, the posture and the approach of our prayer. So today's going to be a little bit more of, okay, how do we execute that? A little bit more of the content and the, not really the mechanics, but, but how do we actually exercise this? And, and it's, Jesus is actually correcting and instructing here. He actually says, hey, don't pray like that. He gives some examples last week. Don't pray so that everybody can hear, you know, just, just doing it for external, you know, so everybody can hear that you're a good Christian. No, don't do it for everybody else to recognize. And don't, don't use a whole bunch of words. It's not necessary. And then he goes, so not like that, but like this. Okay, so that, that's, the, that's the hope of today. Okay, how do we pray? But before we just kind of write it off as, okay, this is a, a mechanical, like these would be some good points, let's, let's lean in here a little bit because it's too often we kind of treat the Bible as just this book of instructions that's telling us what not to do and what to do. And it certainly is doing that. But 
beyond that. It's not just these negatives of don't do that. It's always invitational. It's always inviting us to something better. And you see the heart behind the Lord's prayer here is, is in the context of don't be a hypocrite. You don't have to try to approach God that way. Instead, come to him as your father. And so Jesus is going to teach us how to pray, but it's not just mechanics. He's still after our heart. So as we talk about how do we bring our needs before God, how do we actually bring our heart's desires, our fears, our concerns, our ask to God? We've got some learning to do. We've got some learning to do. And Jesus knows this, and this is why he comes at it this way. Because he knows that, that many of us have had our view of, of our own needs shaped by our childhood, by our life. And what I mean by that is when you were growing up, God, is, God gives us family. He gives us mothers and fathers in his design to teach us about himself. Like moms and dads are supposed to mirror and image God to kids and teach us how to interact with God. But we live in a fallen world and that gets broken and that gets jacked up and there are no perfect you know, earthly fathers. There's no perfect earthly mothers. And so we, we get confused. We get, we get messed up. And, and, and we've been hearing something about our needs our whole life. So some of you grew up in a household where you didn't know if it was safe to have your own needs, your own emotional needs and expressions, because when you tried to express your needs, it didn't go well. When you tried to express your needs, some of you, when you tried to express your needs as a kid, you, you, you found that really nobody was there. Like maybe your parents just actually weren't there physically, but maybe they were there, but they weren't there and they didn't care and they were dismissive and, and you know, and you were just on your own a lot for a variety of reasons, but, but that was the message that you heard. And inadvertently, it may have came across this whole idea that, hey, if it's going to be, it's up to me, right? If it's going to be, it's up to me. And some of y'all live by that motto with a little bit of pride, don't you? That if something is going to happen, it's got to be, I got to take care of it. Others of you lived in a household where as you begin to bring your needs to your, your parents, you were mocked. You were dismissed. You were, you, you were uh, maybe literally mocked. Oh, did you hurt yourself? Or you were, too, you, were, you were called dramatic. Don't be a drama queen. You were called, many of you men were called wussies by your fathers. Or worse. Or worse. When you expressed needs and pain and fear as a kid, how your parents responded told you something about your needs. It told you something about whether or not you can bring your needs, whether you can have them and whether anybody cares to help you with them. Others of you observed your family, your parents were so fragile dealing with the stress of their life and their marriage and their problems that you realize, oh, if I have any, it's going to push them over the edge. They're so stressed out and barely hanging on as it is. If I have a need or something goes wrong in my life, it might break them. So you learn to manage your own stuff or stuff it down. And some of y'all begin to manage your, own, your parents' emotional states by speaking up or not speaking up got real personal real quick, didn't it? But here's, here's why that matters. Because we bring those kinds of, that message that we heard about our needs, we bring that into our relationships, don't we? Some of y'all, that, that mess right there is at the root of your marital problems. 
how you see things, how you, how you see the world, how you see your own needs is at the root of your struggles within marriage, right? Uh, certainly as you parent and kids and family or whatever, but most importantly, we bring those, those interpretations into our relationship with God. And most of us wouldn't say it because we know it's not theologically true, but many of us don't pray because we're scared of God's response. Many of us don't actually pray. We don't bring our needs to God because we're afraid that he'll be disappointed in us for not having it all figured out. How many of you feel like you can only go to God after you've got a solution? After you've got it figured out? Like that, that, that becomes a rhythm for us. Or some of us get really caught in this conundrum of God's sovereignty and his rule over the whole universe. And, and we know he, he's listened to a billion prayers, right? And he's running the universe. He's making sure this thing doesn't go off the rails. So we don't feel like our, our little needs matter much. And so some of you don't pray because you're like, man, God's got bigger things to deal with, right? Like that's a real struggle. We sort of dismiss our needs because we're like, man, God's got bigger stuff. I'm not going to bother him that, or the most devastating blow of all, is we struggle because we believe if we actually reach out, if we actually put ourselves out there, it'll be met with silence. That he actually just won't be there. Right? I remember I was like 12. Um, and my, my, my real dad was not around. He, he, didn't, uh, he didn't raise me until I was like 16. We have an okay relationship now, so I'm not trying to dog on him. But I, I remember, I, I just didn't know him. Like, he could have been in the room. I wouldn't have known him. But I, I remember when I got braces, him and my mom were on the phone talking about, you know, paying for braces. And uh, I, I was sitting on the couch. I knew she was talking to him. And I heard her say, he's right here. Do you want to talk to him? And man, my heart went nuts, right? I was like, whoa, that was like really scary to me. And I never got the phone. Now, I don't even know if I wanted to talk to him. Right? Because I had some, I had some, you know, I didn't know how to articulate my stuff. But that said something to me. Right? That's seeded deep down in me. And that has affected how I, how I communicate with God. That's affected how I approach God. And I know for so many of y'all, you have similar wounds and stories and struggles. And so we bring that into our relationship with God. And that is why Jesus is so focused on this idea of, hey, you're coming to your father, but we have some corrective measures to take. And so we rightly view our father. So Jesus goes to great lengths to change this narrative for us. If you read the parables that he tells about teaching, he's saying, listen, he's a good father. Come to him, right? He says, ask Ask, ask, knock, knock, pester, find him, go look for him. He's in the other room. You go find it. The door's locked. You, you beat on the door. He's saying, wake him up in the middle of the night. Pester him. Keep asking. Keep asking. Be his kid. He's a good dad. He is a safe place for you to have needs. Jesus is, is going, some of y'all are too theological to get into this. The Sermon on the Mount, he's inviting us into this relationship. You've heard it before. Religion's not, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. But have you gone deep and, and, and dealt with this, this junk that you've got in between you and the Lord? Jesus is going to great lengths to correct this narrative. He's saying, listen, come to him as a father. Some of you are like, okay, okay, but, but how, right? <laughs> Give me, can you just tell me what to say? Can you tell me where to start? And Jesus does that. That's kind of the whole idea with the the Lord's Prayer. He said, don't, you don't have to pray like that. You don't have to pray like that. You don't have to have a lot of fancy words. Instead, pray like this. That's why he stops. The Lord's Prayer is so interesting, that the context that it's in. He's stopping. You don't have to pray like that. Don't interact with God this way, like the pagans do. 
pray like this. And he gives us this prayer. He gives us, this is a framework. We're reciting this on the front and the back end of our service today, but it's not just something to be memorized and recited and you don't have to say anything else. That's not what he's inviting us to here. This is a framework for us to bring our needs to God. And through this prayer, the last half of the prayer, I believe he's, he's inviting us to lean in on our relationship with him and to interact with him in, in three ways, this relationship, to bring our needs with total dependency, total transparency, and total trust. Okay, so let's look first at total dependency, verse 11. He says this, give us this day our daily bread. Now, that just, that's a prayer we've prayed, but a lot of us are going to struggle to get that because here's the deal. Most of us have pantries full of food, don't we? And refrigerators full of food. Like you could not earn a paycheck. The stores could close down right now and you'd be fine for a few days right? Despite the snowpocalypse deal when we all run to the, the store. I used to be in the grocery and I, I don't know what y'all are cooking when you get your, your, your milk and your bread and your eggs. There's French toast for days. I don't know what you're doing there, but everybody does that. But the reality is even if you didn't get to the store and you were actually snowed in, which rarely happens too, but you'd be okay because you got food, right? So we struggle with this idea of needing daily bread. But the people that Jesus was talking to here, they wouldn't have because most of them, the majority of them would have been day laborers. Meaning, Literally, what they earn that day is what they're going to be able to eat off of. Like, it's that day-to-day for them. If you've been in other countries, it's still like that a lot. I had a friend who adopted it, uh, kiddo, uh, two kiddos from Uganda, and they spent several weeks there. And he had this taxi, uh, motorcycle taxi driver that he just said, hey, I just want you with me. So he paid him a retainer every day. But he's talking to him, says, how much do you make in a day? And how do you eat? Like, tell me about that. He says, well, if I make less than five bucks a day, I don't eat. If I make between five and ten, I'll eat some rice. Maybe more than 10, I'll get some fruit and maybe some meat. That's just a day-to-day deal. Like, okay, what do I make? That's what, maybe I will, maybe I won't eat. That's, that's the mentality most of them are going to have. So praying, Lord, give me my daily bread is going to have a different meaning for them. However, it goes back way further than that. And more importantly, in the narrative of Scripture, it goes way back to the Exodus story. And if you know the story of Exodus, if you don't, it's okay. I would encourage you to read it uh, in the book titled Exodus. But the, whole, the, the, the story is that God's people are in captivity in Egypt, So the Israelites, that's God's people, the Jews, they're in captivity to the Pharaoh in Egypt, and they are slaves. They are making bricks, they are getting less material and cranking out more work, and they are under the thumb of a Pharaoh who hates them. They are a slave nation. They're crying out to their God, are you going to save us? Are you going to save us? He hears their prayers. He sends Moses to save them. You may know the story. You may have heard the stories about the plagues. He sends the plagues to get them out of Pharaoh's grasp. They, they get out of Pharaoh's grasp. They end up at the Red Sea. That's another, you know, traumatic moment. What are we going to do? God saves them, parts the Red Sea, brings them into the wilderness, and, and he tells them, I have a promised land for you. I have a good land. I'm going to take you there. We're going to flourish together. But in the meantime, they, they you know, they got a ways to go to get there, and they start walking and there's, there's like, you know, a whole bunch of them, hundreds of thousands of millions. Like there's a bunch of these people and they get out there and there's everybody's like, who brought lunch? And it's hot and it's the desert for real. Y'all, what are we going to eat? Right? It's the kid that starts grumbling right after you pull out of the driveway. That's one thing. But later you're actually going to have to feed these people. Did God forget to make a lunch plan? No, he was doing something on purpose. He brought them to this place of need because he wanted to cultivate a relationship with them where they were totally dependent upon them. So, yeah, they realize their stomachs are grumbling and they have no way to get food for everybody. So what does God do? He sends bread from heaven. It's called manna. In Hebrew, it means, what is it? 
Because literally, they've never seen it before. They're like, we're hungry. God goes, I know, I got you. Here's the stuff. And it falls down from heaven, and they're like, what is it? I don't know. What are we going to call it? Uh, what is it? <laughs> Not kidding. That's what it translates to. So manna, and, and, and so God feeds them, but it's, it's this curious thing that he says, okay, here's your food. Take as much as you need for the day. He says, if you take more than you need for the day, it's going to spoil. And it does. They try, to, they try to hoard more, you know, just in case he doesn't show up, right? And that's fair because they've been living in a slavery land. Like, they didn't know if the Pharaoh was going to feel like feeding them that day or not. So if they can store some extra food for the next day, that makes sense to them. God says, no, no, don't, don't store more. Like, you just need enough for that day. I'll feed you tomorrow too. They try to take more than they need for the day. It would spoil. The next day, he would give them more. The next day, he would give them more. He gave them what they need. Why? Because he's trying to cultivate this, this relationship of total, 100% utter dependence on him. Why? Because that's what their hearts need. And they're inclined to look for self-sufficiency. They're inclined to, 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 okay, God, thank you, but now I got this, right? Okay, God, thanks for getting us out of Egypt, but I, I got this now. Let's let, let start farming. No, God says, no, no, I want you to be totally, 100% dependent upon me. And they don't know what to think of it, right? They're hungry, like, oh, man, God, you brought us out of Egypt, but now you just brought us out here so we could starve to death. I'd have rather been a slave. At least I had cucumbers to eat. God's like, no, no, I, I, I have a plan. I want to provide for you. He sustains them by giving them bread from heaven, and he, and he, and he makes sure that they don't just take enough for today because I, will, I got you tomorrow. What's he doing there? He's creating a relationship where they know he's their good father. They can ask him, and he will care for them. We see this in foster care a lot, kids that, that come out of, of situations where they have not been cared for, they have not been fed, they have not been given, or your kids that have been adopted from an orphanage, they went days, weeks where they were hungry, they didn't know if they were going to get food. So you take a kid that's now in a safe environment, in a good home that's going to feed them three meals a day, they don't know that. Their belly starts to grumble, they start to look for food, they will hoard it, they will stash it, they will try to put it away, they will steal it from others. Why? Because that's what they've had to do. So... My wife is coaching families. Here's how you help them. You don't need to get mad at them. Just help them learn that you're their, you're their good provider now. You're going you're gonna to take care of them. There's strategies for that. This is what God's doing in the, in the wilderness. He's teaching them, I'm, I'm your good provider. I want you to trust me. He's heard their cries. He has rescued them. And he has promised them a future of blessing. He has a plan. But in the meantime, he wants them to have total dependence on him. So, They've got to rely on him 100%. So here's the connection for us. Here's the deal. God has rescued us from our slavery, has he not? If you're here and you don't know that good news, we'll get to that in just a moment, but he's rescued us. That's the gospel. That's what Michael's talking about. We were unable to save ourselves. He has rescued us from our slavery. And guess what? He's promised us a land, hasn't he? He's promised us a blessing. It's called heaven. It's going to be awesome. But in the meantime, we've got a journey to get there, don't we? And in the meantime, he wants us to have the same kind of relationship where we trust him for our daily bread, where we trust him for our provisions, where he is our good father, where we're totally relying upon him, where we ask and he gives, we ask and he gives, we ask and he gives. So if you're going to have a consistent prayer life, or if, another way to put it, if you're going to have a relationship with God, you have to become totally dependent. Totally dependent. You have to have the mindset of a day laborer. If you're familiar with the book, The Magician's Nephew, it's the first, it's the, the prequel in the, the, the series of the Chronicles of Narnia. 
And Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe is the most famous one. It's made a movie, but this is a prequel to that. And, and in that story, they're learning, it's two kiddos, Diggory and, and Polly, they're learning uh, about this new world, and they've seen Aslan create. And anyway, they're learning how to approach him, and they're going with him on an adventure, and they're hungry. Like, hey, you know, should we ask Aslan about lunch? And, and one of them says, well, I think he's probably... Like, he probably has that plan. He just created all this. Like, he probably has a lunch plan. And, and another one goes, yeah, but I, I, I kind of get the impression that he likes us to ask. Right? God is going to care for you. He's going to say it in later chapters, like, consider the lily. Consider the birds of the field. I take care of them. I will take care of you, too. But he still wants us to ask. It's this beautiful paradox of prayer. So between our rescue of salvation and the promised land of heaven, he wants us to be totally dependent on him. This is the work of the gospel. He wants to heal our hearts so that we know God this way. He's our good shepherd. He is providing for us. What, whatever job, like, okay, so how do we do this, right? Like, how do we do this? How do we actually cultivate this in an era of self-sufficiency? Well, when you pray like this, when you ask God, give me my daily bread, and then you realize, even if you had a pantry full of stuff, you start attributing him as the one who got you the job. You start reflecting on the home you have and you start thinking him, okay, God is the one who's allowed me to have this, the food we have, the family, the things we enjoy, our dogs, right? Like, God, like if you enjoy that relationship, if you've got a cat, you're gonna have to talk to somebody else about that. I don't think God can be held responsible for those evil things, but, but all the other good things in life, like you roll that back up to God and you thank him for it, right? You attribute him as being the one who has given you these good gifts and this creates a dependency on him. Tim Keller says it this way, to pray is to accept that we are and always will be wholly dependent on God for everything. So when we pray, we're we're expressing, hey God, I'm totally dependent on you. Totally dependent on you. Secondly, he wants us to be totally transparent with him. So he says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, this needs a little bit of clarity because if you're thinking about, you know, you're a Christian, I thought my debts were forgiven, why do I have to ask, right? We'll get to that in just a moment. But if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're just checking out church, you're checking out Christianity, wondering if it can make your life better, here's the, the biggie on the eye chart that you have to know before you know anything else, is that forgiveness is your primary need. And until you get that taken care of, there is no relationship with God. There is no answering of prayers. There is no fellowship and relationship with him. You need to be forgiven first and foremost. You know why? We need it to be forgiven. It's not a you thing. It's not that I know your mess and you really got to be forgiven until you can get this relationship. No, it's all of us. The Bible says it's all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. And that's what keeps us from him as our good father, our good provider. So our first and foremost need is that we are forgiven. There's this incredible story, you may know it, where uh, there's a paralyzed man and Jesus is teaching and his friends do all they can. They tear a hole in the roof and they lower him down in front of Jesus. It's curious, what's the first thing that Jesus says to this man? Your sins are forgiven. You gotta think he's like, okay, cool, but my my legs, boss. Like I came here to came for you to heal heal me. But the idea is like, your greatest need is your sins being forgiven. Then he tells that dude to get up and walk, and it's glorious, right? But if we don't know that, if we haven't seen that that our greatest need is that we are forgiven and reconciled to a holy God and that Jesus, as Micah said earlier, made that possible by his death on the cross, then there is no going forward in your relationship with God. That is where you have to begin. Okay, so now that we're in that relationship, we are forever forgiven and we are secure. We can't, we can't you know, mess that up. We're his kids. We're adopted now, right? It's not this, you know, we'll see how you do thing and if you can't behave, you're out of my house. He doesn't treat us that way. We're his kids, adopted, sealed, forever his 
So why do we need to ask for forgiveness? Well, this is about this is about relationship and intimacy. This isn't about a doctrine of security. Okay? We haven't sinned in such a way that he's done with us and that he's kicking us out. This is about fellowship. Okay? This is about this isn't about the doctrine of justification. Once we have been saved by Jesus, we will always be saved by Jesus. It wasn't up to us, so it's not up to us to keep it. We are secure in his grasp, but you know what? We're his kid, and, and he's our father now, so this is about relationship. This is about intimacy, so that's why we confess and ask for forgiveness. We have to go back to being a fatherhood relationship. He's not disowning us. He's not kicking us out. It is not true. If you've been taught that if you, if you sin and you don't ask for forgiveness and you die, you have lost your salvation and you will go to hell. That is not true. It's not anywhere in the Bible. You need to get over that. The Bible says you are secure in him, but, it, but at the same time, you're now a part of his family. So as you talk to him and as you interact with him, we don't want to have stuff in between us. We don't want to have this, this, these unspoken tensions and, and sins against us. So he says, hey, confess right? Forgive us our debts. And debts is a better translation than, than trespasses, I believe, because it's not just the stuff we've done wrong, but it's this idea, we just sing about it, we stood beneath a death, a debt that we can never afford. What does that mean? We owe God a perfect life. You realize that? That's the only thing that admits us into his presence is a perfect life. We owe him that but none of us can produce it, right? None of us are able to produce it. But Jesus does for us. Jesus lives the perfect life for us. He produces that for us. He pays up for us. So he says, forgive us our debts. Like that, that's this idea, man. There's, we, we've, we've sinned in such a way. We've, we've so diminished what God meant for us to be that we owe him something we could never pay back. And yet he has taken care of it for us. And so when we talk about this idea of, of, of asking for forgiveness, this is about, the intimacy and the relationship with our Father. We have to remember, okay, so now back to practical life. Some of you, it didn't go well for you when you messed up as a kid, right? How your parents responded to you when you messed up as a kid is, is likely informing how you approach God even as an adult, whenever you screwed up. Some of you, when you did something wrong, your parents flew off the handle, they screamed at you, or worse, they, they hit you, right? Maybe they did kick you out like, and parents make mistakes. Some of them, sometimes that's chronic. Sometimes that's just life, right? But we have to look at who God is and look at how he interacts with his people. Exodus 34, he's still getting to know his people, or his people are still getting to know him, rather. And he gives this description to Moses. He says, uh, the Lord passed before him, Exodus 34, 6. He says, Here, who's who I, here's who I am. I'm a God. I'm merciful and gracious. And I am slow to anger. That means he has a really, 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 really long wick. The, the actual Hebrew there is long, a long nose, right? And, and it's literally describing it's going to take him a long time before he flies off the handle. He, he's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who our God is. He's our good, good father. He is a safe place for us to come and confess and repent. It's only safe because Jesus has made it safe by his blood. But if you're under his blood, it is safe for you to come to the throne of grace and ask for forgiveness. So we ask, that we ask God, hey, forgive me of my sins. We, 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 ex we express them specifically. This is a time in prayer that we actually tell God, this is how I've sinned. Please forgive me. I know I should have done this and I didn't. I know I, 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 I shouldn't have done this and I did, right? We, we name our specific sins and we ask him to forgive us. But there's this collective nature to it. 
It says, forgive us our sins. And here's the deal. The gospel is, is a collective gospel. It's about us, not just me, right? It, it's, a, it's a us thing. And the gospel reconciles us vertically, and that's the primary thing, right? It reconciles us as a sinner to God who is holy, but by its very nature, it impacts and and demands horizontal reconciliation as well. What does that mean? We don't get to just have our reconciliation with God and then not deal with our differences and our issues and our sins against one another. We looked at this earlier in the Ten Commandments, or in the Beatitudes. But Jesus is saying this because we can't commune with God while holding stuff against others. Okay, he's told us that earlier. Like we have to be a people who, because we've been treated with mercy, we have to treat others with mercy. We saw where he says, listen, if you're worshiping, and you remember that you have a brother who has something against you, stop worshiping, lay your gift at the altar and go find that brother and reconcile and then come back and worship. Like there is this zero tolerance of, okay, I, I wanna talk to you, God, but I'm gonna really treat everybody else poorly. I'm gonna hold my grudges. He's saying, you can't commune with God while holding stuff against others. And that word can't there, I think has a double meaning in this text. Can't meaning like just what I said, like we don't get to hold things against others that God isn't holding against them. We, like he forbids us. It's kind of the point of verse 14 and 15, if you want to skip down there. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That sounds like your salvation is hinging upon your action. In reality, what he's saying here is if, if you... <laughs> If you have been saved by this miraculous gospel, if you have been saved by no work of your own, but by the total mercy and grace of Jesus, you will be inclined, you will be led to treat others with forgiveness as well. So he's saying you you can't keep stuff between you and other people and actually worship God. And and listen, real quick, it doesn't say if, if you're really struggling to forgive others or if it's really hard. Some of y'all got some junk going on and, and you've got some wounds and some trauma and some pain and, and you're working on that. It, it's not about that. It's the person who refuses. It's the person who won't forgive other people. You don't get to just hang out in God's presence in prayer and expecting it to be okay if you haven't dealt with that. So he, he just doesn't allow it. it your, <clears throat> your issues with other people will affect your prayer life. But the other can't, the other part of that is because we, we honestly just can't. If you're approaching God, you're actually worshiping him, you're actually in his presence, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make it really, really hard for you to remain angry at other people. Let's make it really practical. You're having a fight with your husband or your wife, and you're angry, and you're justified. You, you feel justified in that anger. You have a point to prove, right? They've wronged you. If you go into your prayer closet, and you actually look at your father, and you remember how he's treated you, He had a point to prove, didn't he? You've wronged him so deeply, so consistently, so regularly. And yet, how'd he treat you? Right? When you actually enter into the throne of God and you're you're honestly looking at him, it will will humble you, or it should, right? If you're honestly going into his presence, you will be humbled, and it will take away that that, that pride and that defensiveness, and and you will be led to, okay, i got to go reconcile this other relationship. It will get you over yourself in such a way that, man, so if you're truly worshiping him, man, you're praying to him about that conflict, it's going to lead you back into reconciliation with the other person. Here's the deal. We become like our dad. Forgive us our debts as we've also been forgiven our, forgive us, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors, right? 
We become like our dad. When we, like some of you are, sh- you are shaped by a person. I've talked a lot about the whole, you know, fast food dynamic, you know, people just snapping on people in customer service. Some of you are shaped by a, a family that when you were wronged, like when your, your parents were wrong, you saw how they postured up and, and retaliated, right? And, and you're, you're shaped by that. How do we treat people who have wronged us? I'm, I'm so aware of that myself. I remember just a few weeks ago, uh, this was before the sermon on anger. I know I've carried this a long way, but I, I got a lot of these instances for you, unfortunately. But a few weeks ago, I was, uh, my kids, we went to town for something else and they wanted Dairy Queen. I was like, all right, there's no good reason not to. Let's, let's, let's do Dairy Queen today. But I realized I don't have my wallet. But I was like, oh yeah, Dairy Queen will take Apple Pay. That's good. Let's just go on through. So I get up there. I do an order for my, you know, my big crew of kids. And I get up there and I try to, I was like, hey, I'll pay with Apple Pay. She's like, uh, we don't take Apple Pay. And I was like, uh, you do. And she was like, we don't. And I was like, but I was here the other day and I paid with Apple Pay. And she was like, you weren't here. And I was like, I know I was. Like, I don't go to another Dairy Queen. I go to the Dairy Queen. Like, and I was angry because I was like, I know I paid with Apple Pay. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to. Like, I was, and I was like, with all due respect, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I'm so arrogant. I was like, I think you're wrong. And she's like, I'll go ask somebody else, but I'm pretty sure we don't. Sure enough, manager's like, so we don't take Apple Pay. I was like, all right, well, good luck with that ice cream I just ordered and you made because I can't pay for it. And so I left. And I was like, all right, I guess I'll go get cash. So I go to Aldi to get cash. And then as I'm leaving, I was like, all right, I'm going to a different Dairy Queen to order. Like, I'm, you know, I got cash now. I'm not going back. I'm not going to show my face there. But you know what? Then I realized, oh, I wasn't at that Dairy Queen. I was in Fairview Heights. They really don't take Apple Pay. And I was like, man, I got to go back and make that right. And so I did. I went back through, and I, I was like, hey, probably don't have the stuff anymore. But I, you know, and they were like, whatever, just give me your order. And we made it. And I just apologized. The lady was like, I don't really care. Like, you're just another idiot that came through. Like, this is really not a big deal to me. But I was like, I just, I'm sorry. I treated it right. But I wanted my kids to see this is how we treat people. Daddy was wrong. Like, I have to treat people. Like, it was my fault, not theirs. So anyway. We become like our father, right? When we see how he's treated other people, we are compelled to become like him and treat other people how he's treated us. So forgive us our debts, Lord. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us, those who owe us, right? So many parables about that. All right, lastly, total trust. He wants us to have total trust. So he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How many of y'all have really thought about that and got a little bit confused? Like, is, the, is God in the habit of leading us into temptation? Right? It seems a little strange. And James says, it, God doesn't tempt anybody with evil, right? That's, that's not, so what, what is this talking about? Well, I, I want to let, you know, the Bible, clarify the Bible. I want to let Jesus clarify what he means. But, but the, the, you know, there's a difficulty here in this text. In fact, this is what led the Pope to actually change the language a couple years ago. I don't know if you remember this, but he, he actually changed the language of how they recite the Lord's Prayer because he thought this was uh, speaking wrongly of God. So instead of saying, lead me not into temptation, he, he, he wanted to change it. He did change it for the Catholic, you know, ritual to, to let us not fall into temptation. Why? Because he was like, God doesn't lead us into temptation. God doesn't tempt us. Okay, so there's a tension there. There's a whole issue with what the Pope did. You, can't, you, don't, you don't get to posture up on the Bible like that and start making, that, that's not how it works. You gotta let the Bible interpret the Bible. So James 1.13 does say, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God himself cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So that is true. James 1 says it, right? But the Bible also says, Matthew 4, that Jesus was led up by the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What do we do with that? Okay, there's this tension. So 
God doesn't do the tempting himself, but God does testing. Okay? So God doesn't do the tempting in the sense that he doesn't put evil desires in our hearts. He can have no, nothing to do with evil desires, right? But he does bring us into the presence of lots of tests and lots of temptations. The Bible's really clear. Proverbs over and over again. We're not in control of our steps. Like God is guiding our steps. And we're going to face temptation over and over again. So the, the Lord's Prayer is not teaching us to pray against that kind of sovereign guidance. What it's teaching us is to pray that, that the temptation does not take us in, that the temptation doesn't overwhelm us, that we don't get led into temptation in such a way that we get taken over by temptation. So, and, it, and it's coupled quickly with deliver me from this evil that's set before me. So here's the deal. We're all going to encounter temptations every day, innumerable temptations. That's what life is. It's just an endless choice of, you know, am I going to choose belief or unbelief, faith or no faith, obedience, disobedience, like over and over again. But the prayer here is, is God, lead me, like help me avoid that. But when I get there, keep me from falling inside of it. Hold me back from stepping inside of the temptation. Okay, so here's what we know is true. We will have temptations. This world is full of them. We have an enemy who's always looking to take us out, but we have a God who is always giving us a way out, okay? We have an enemy that's always looking to take us out, but we have a God who's always going to provide a way out. So he doesn't tempt us, but he does test us, okay? But we shouldn't relish in those temptations and in those tests, meaning we don't seek them out. We don't go put ourselves in the middle of temptation just so we can show that we've got the resolve to, to resist it. No, we don't, we don't put ourselves in those, those places of trouble and hardship so we can prove our strength. That's not how this works. So when we're praying for God to guide us, we're saying, hey, I don't want to fall into temptation. And the easiest way to not fall into it is just to avoid it altogether, right? And that's an okay desire. That's an okay thing to ask God. But then to know that when we are led into it, when our life requires it for God's glory to be placed into a situation of temptation, that we cry out and we can expect that he will deliver us from that evil just as he did for Jesus. He's our great model. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, I really don't want to go to the cross. But he yields, right? Not my will, but yours. Deliver me. Like he's, he's trusting himself into this. So, so we pray, Lord, don't lead me into a temptation that I can't, you know, that, that's gonna take me over. Like don't, don't lead me into that. But when you, if it comes to pass, if I'm in a position where, okay, I'm being tempted, then deliver me, right? We should want both of those things. Like we, we pray, okay, Lord, I, I'd rather not encounter that kind of temptation today, but when it comes, I'm gonna trust you to be my deliverer. So we should pray that it's limited and avoided but then that we look to him for deliverance whenever it comes upon us. So this is our framework, okay? This is, this is when we pray, pray like this. But remember, he's our good father, right? So, so, okay, back to last week. We remember when we come into prayer, we're talking to our good father. We're talking to dad. We're talking to a good father who has purchased us, adopted us, okay? Secondly, we remember his kingdom is what's coming. That's his agenda, not your kingdom, not my kingdom, he cares about you, but he is ultimately advancing his kingdom. It will help you in your prayer to keep that in mind. His kingdom come, his will be done. That's the best thing we could pray. And that allows us to submit and say, okay, your will be done, Lord. Okay, we remember those things, but then beyond that, okay, we, he invites us to be dependent, be transparent, and be trusting of him. But then, we're gonna skip over to chapter seven. He's saying, just come with that. Uh, like regularly. So Jesus doesn't give us the Lord's Prayer 
to give us a more efficient way to talk to him so we're not coming to him so often and not bothering him so often. This is not why he gives us the Lord's Prayer. He's not like, man, oh, these kids just won't shut up. They keep asking me, keep asking me. If you guys would just speak to me like this, well, I'll understand your request and we can all move on with our day. It's not his posture. He's saying, this is how you get to talk to me. So you know what? Come talk to me. All the time, come talk to me. Come talk to me regularly. Come talk to me. Let's skip over to chapter 7, verse 7. It says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which, he says, which one of you? This is such a beautiful example, such a beautiful argument for why we should pray regularly. Which one of you, if a son asks him for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, right? That's, a, that's us. That's just broken, sinful people, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, there it is, your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So we're going to, we'll speak to this a little bit more in its context whenever we preach through chapter 7 in a few weeks. But it's important, I think it's important for us to tag this on here, because this should be our posture. Ask, right? So if a kid's with his parent, the parent's in the room, they have something they need, mommy, daddy, can you help me with this, right? If the, par- if the parent's not in the room, they're going to get up and go to try to find that parent, right? It happened today at my house. Like, where's mommy, right? She's, she's in the bathroom putting on her makeup, right? Where's mommy? I need something, right? Can I help you with something? Probably not. I need mommy, right? That's, okay, I try, right? Where's mommy? You're seeking, right? Can't see him. Okay, if they're in a room, you know, they're, they're, they're not available right now, the room door's locked, what are we going to do? We're going to knock, we're going to knock, we're going to knock, right? This should be our posture for us as his children, ask, seek, knock. But the context is so important because what we'll see is this is in the context of our living a life of godliness, living a life of treating others the way we want to be treated, not judging them, but appropriately coming to them. The context here is, hey, live for my glory and it's going to be hard, but you know what? When it gets hard, I'll give you everything you need. You just come and ask for it. That's the qualifier. That's the context here. He's saying, he says, um, I think it's in First Peter, uh, Chad taught our students on this last week, but that, that we have been given everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. In Christ, he's given us everything we need. So that's what he's talking about here. As you're trying to follow me, when you're trying to live life in a way that's glorifying God, if there's something that you don't have in order to do that, simply ask and it will be given to you. Okay, so that helps because this is not just this carte blanche for your desires, ask whatever you want and he'll give it to you. It's not what's being taught here, right? It's context here that's so important, right? James chapter 4, 2 and 3 qualifies this even more for us. He says this, you do not have because you don't ask. But he says you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he says there's a lot of stuff you just don't have because you haven't asked it. He's a good father ready to give it to you. But there's other things you've asked for and I'm not giving it to you because you're asking out of the wrong posture because you just want to spend it on your own passions and fleshly desires. But when you're asking in his name, when you're asking it to, to live a life of godliness, he will not withhold any good thing from you as his child. Okay, so this doesn't mean that he doesn't care about your desires. It's not only when it's his kingdom and it's really clear. That's not the only things you can bring to him. But having this context in mind will, help, will bring a perspective that's helpful for you. So when we come to him with our petitions, we can be assured that he hears us. This is, that's the big idea. This is like, keep asking, keep looking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And we can be assured that he hears us and that he will answer. Now, what those answers are is going to vary, right? Like sometimes it's a yes. And he's really glad to just offer that right in the moment. Other times it's a not yet. And other times it's a no. Right? And, 
And if you think about it in the, in the, the analogy he's talking about here is a good father, sometimes good dads have to say no, right? It would be unloving if they didn't. Right? You know this if you're a parent. Like, um, so we have to remember, he's our good father, and he, and he only gives good gifts to his children. But he's also, being, in being good, he's the only one wise enough to determine what's good and what's bad. You know if you're a parent, there's things you know that your kids don't understand. They don't understand why you said no to that. They don't understand why you won't let them do this. But you know it's for their good. Same is true for us with God. He knows a lot that we don't. He knows a lot that we don't. Some of you, the Garth Brooks song really resonates with you. I think it was Garth. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Some of y'all, that was you, right? You were praying for that. If God, if you give me anything, just let me marry that girl, right? Marry that boy. 25 years later, you see him on Facebook. You're like, all right, God, you had that one. Appreciate it. <laughs> Dodged a bullet, right? He knows what he's doing. We think, man, this is what I need. God goes, eh, I don't he think that, but I love you. I'm going to hold that one back from you. So he only gives good gifts. It doesn't say that he always gives the bread, does it? It just says he won't give him a stone. That's, that's actually what he's saying. It doesn't say he's always giving the fish. He says he won't give a snake. Sometimes, sometimes we don't need a fish right now. Somebody doesn't need the bread right now. He has something better for us, but we have to wait for it, right? So um, we could pray with confidence. This is from Tim Keller. This is, we're wrapping up here. In confidence, we can pray knowing that in short, God will either give us what we ask for or he will give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. Okay, I'm going to say that again. When we pray, we can trust that God will either give us what we ask for or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. Okay? So as we close, let's not settle for status quo prayer lives. Let's really heed Jesus' invitation to come and enjoy our Father. This beautiful privilege to come and pray to the God of the universe. Whatever's kept you from that, don't be so proud as to hold on to that. Let's come. For some of you, if you're here, you're not a Christian, come today and be saved. Like, receive the greatest gift that your Father can give you, and that is forgiveness. For the rest of you, man, I don't know what your prayer life is like, but he's inviting you to something better. This altar should be full today. Let's just come and, and, and just cry out to our Heavenly Father. Okay, so in just a moment, we're going to have, I'm gonna, I have my elders and some community group leaders kind of hang out up, up front here. If you want prayer from one of them, we'll be on the side. You just come to them. If you just want to come and uh, enjoy some time with your, your God at the altar, that's okay. Church, we don't whisper about why so-and-so is coming. We rejoice that they came. If you're, if you're inclined to whisper why, why they're coming, you probably ought to come yourself. Just putting that out there. Let's pray. God, help us to never get over the privilege that you purchased for us on the cross, that we could come into the presence of a holy God as his kids. Ah, man, you know everything that shaped us to this point, the reasons why we struggle with that. I pray that you would just break those walls down and, and, and heal hearts today, that we would all leave here, not with guilt that we need to pray better, 
but with joy that we get to pray better, that we get to pray with our, that we get to talk to our God, that he actually has shown up for us. I pray that the cross would be a screaming reminder that you have not abandoned us, that you are not an abandoning father, that you are God who stepped into our mess and pursued us so much so that you gave your only begotten son that we could have life. I pray that hearts would be healed by that truth this morning. We look to you, Jesus. In your name we pray.